Our sermon this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Romans in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. While you're finding uh, your way there, I feel like it's incumbent upon me once again uh, to give you thanks for your great love and affection for me and my family. Uh, The occasion that brings this gratitude out of my heart is the stack of gift cards in which I was presented uh, this week. Um, The envelope was bursting with them. Uh, In fact, I I got presented them to my wife uh, when we were out um, on parents' night out, out going out to dinner on Friday. Uh, I received them on Tuesday, and I was sorely tempted to take a couple out and hide them. Um, (laughs) But I overcame that temptation and uh, presented them all to her for her good keeping. And I thank you so much for your uh, very practical expression of your affection and love for our family. Uh, It means perhaps more to us than you do realize. So thank you and praise God for that work. I hope you have found your way by now to Romans chapter 8. Hear now the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let us ask for help. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would help us. There's a good work before us to consider these glorious truths which you have seen fit to preserve for your church. We have a good helper who resides within us, namely the Spirit of Christ. We ask you now to speak to us to open our hearts to rejoice and to receive this revelation, these truths of our God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of the world's religions teach that we atone for or that we make amends for our misdeeds through our good deeds. Sometimes this is called penance, which is kind of a voluntarily inflicted punishment on oneself in order to pay the penalty that your sins deserved. And so the Roman Catholic faith and the Eastern Orthodox faith will teach this idea of penance, that we atone for our sins committed after our baptism through certain works. For instance, sometimes those who subscribe to this system are asked to pray a certain prayer a certain number of times. And if the sin is egregious enough, perhaps fasting will be added to that act of penance. Other penance, acts of penance are a little more severe and bizarre. Pastor Stephen Davey writes about an act in the Philippines recently when ten men and one woman voluntarily crucified themselves as an act of penance. The account goes as follows. 
Close to a thousand residents watched under the hot sun as these 11 people staggered into a fenced knoll where neighbors awaited with wooden crosses, hammers, and four-inch nails. Bus driver Chito Sengalang grimaced as the nails were driven into his palms and feet as he was nailed to a cross. The cross was hoisted aloft for the crowd to see. This is the 14th year in a row that this man has had his hands and feet nailed to a cross. One spectator said, it's amazing to see people sacrificing themselves for their sins. Another act that seems somewhat foreign to us took place in Havana, Cuba about a decade ago when a man, in an attempt to expiate the sins that he had committed, attached a very large stone to his ankle with a chain several feet long. And there he pulled that rock through a dirt road inch by inch over many days on a pilgrimage uh, dedicated to St. Lazarus. Now we in America know better. I'm not sure. I thought that may be the case, but I did some reflecting. Though I imagine our acts are a little less bizarre and a little less strange, I believe that many of us still feel that we secure our forgiveness by the acts of goodness in which we accomplish. Muhammad Ali once captured this American, or maybe even this this worldwide sentiment, by famously saying, one day we're all going to die and God is going to judge our good deeds and bad deeds. And if the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. But if the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. Or consider a man named Bill, who I recently read of his practice of donating blood. In fact, Bill has donated over 100 pints of blood over the last couple of years. I trust that many people perhaps owe their lives to Bill's kindness and generosity. But what I found a little bit peculiar was the motivation behind this giving of blood. When asked why he does it, Bill said, when that final whistle blows and God asks, what did you do? I'll just say, well, I gave 100 pints of blood. Then Bill added with a laugh, that ought to get me in. So Bill is trusting in giving 100 pints of blood in order to secure his place in heaven. I wonder if one day Bill will find out he is trusting in the wrong blood. Friends, I do believe that it is spilled blood that will get us into heaven, but not mine or yours or even Bill's. My question for you this morning is how do you overcome your sin? What will you say to a holy God when you stand before him? Certainly, friend, you know you're not perfect. You know you violate his laws and thought and word and deed. What are you relying on? I trust it's not annual crucifixions and dragging rocks by your ankles. But perhaps some of you are trusting in your own acts of kindness, generosity. Maybe not the blood you give, but perhaps the time you give to the homeless shelter or impoverished children, or perhaps even teaching a Sunday school class. Or perhaps it's more mundane things that we trust in, our work ethic, or our love for our spouse, or our care for our children, or our commitment to citizenship. I think many people hope in these things. Their neighbors all around us perhaps place their faith in these good acts in order to secure their place in heaven. The Bible I would like to teach you this morning presents a different hope. A different plea. We see this in Romans chapter 8 and verse, verses 1 through 4, which God willing will study in a moment. But I do want to tell you that today uh, we are beginning a new series. Uh, the series we've entitled All Things New. And in the coming nine weeks, if God is 
willing, we are going to study the entire chapter of Romans 8. I'm excited to do so. Many people consider Romans 8 the best chapter in all of Scripture. In fact, it has been called the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of the Christian faith. German uh, pietist Philip Spenner proclaimed that if the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans was its precious stool, uh, a stone, then chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. Pastor Stephen Cole says if you struggle with guilt, read Romans 8. If you struggle with sin, read Romans 8. If you're going through trials, read Romans 8. If you don't know how to pray, read Romans 8. If you're struggling with assurance, read Romans 8. If you're discouraged, depressed, distressed, read Romans 8. Martin Luther said every Christian ought to learn the book of Romans by heart. And if that is true, it's certainly true of Romans chapter 8. So perhaps you would like to join me over the next nine weeks in committing these 39 glorious verses to memory. That we may store them in our heart. 39 verses that begin with no condemnation and end with no separation. Perhaps it is the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. If you want my sentiment... Um, The greatest chapter in Scripture is usually the one I'm preaching. Um, So yes, Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. Friends, let me tell you what what makes it so wonderful, why so many have turned to it. It declares what God has brought to us through Christ, that He has indeed made all things new. That we have new freedom from our rebellious hearts. We have new fellowship through the indwelling spirit. We have a new family through our adoption into God's. We have a new inheritance, the creation liberated from its decay. We have new help in our struggles with prayer. We have a new destiny as God works all things together for our good and for our glory. We have a new security knowing that God is for us. We have a new love as we celebrate that nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And today we consider we have a new hope before a holy God. In fact, I look in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 and I I see four reasons to have hope. I see, first of all, our innocence is proclaimed according to verse 1. Secondly, our freedom is secured according to verse 2. Verse 3 tells us that our sin is condemned. And in verse 4, we see the law is fulfilled. So let's consider these four realities that gives us this new hope this morning. First of all, verse 1 tells us our innocence is proclaimed. Scripture tells us there is therefore now no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now to be perfectly honest, I'm tempted to read Romans 8 verse 1 for about 45 minutes just over and over again. And I think many of us would have a good time. These truths here are just food for our soul, music to our spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation is the promise of God's Word for you. This, of course, refers to being sentenced for a crime. The picture is that the penalty from a judge's verdict... In fact, Allegra was teaching our children this passage yesterday. The children's paraphrase Bible that we use talks about that we have not been judged for our sins. The condemnation that was due to us in this courtroom has been removed. In fact, this whole courtroom scene makes me think of that great courtroom scene that we read in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9 when the scripture tells us, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels were burning with fire. A stream of fire issued forth and came out before him. 
A thousand thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. I believe those books contain every deed, every thought, every word that I have had and that you have had. There, can you imagine what that would be like? You know, Jesus said that you will have to give an account for every careless word that you say. There before a holy God. And amazingly, in light of the fact that the books, the record of Stephen Carn will be open before the Ancient of Days, I will hear these words on that day, no condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation. Those words will be cherished above any on that day. In fact, I think it's almost hard for us to kind of imagine what this will be like for most of us, I imagine, have, have never been declared guilty of anything, so it's hard to understand and appreciate what it will be like not to be condemned. I mean, imagine what that would be like to, to just stand before an earthly judge. Imagine what it would be like to be a defendant before him. Imagine the moments that would be like before the verdict was read. We were discussing this during our Bible study in our staff meeting this week. And I, I asked uh, the staff, has, has anyone stood before a judge like this? And amazingly, Don says, I have. <laughs> but she clarified, she was there as a witness, not as a defendant. And I said, Don, tell us what it was like before the verdict read, was read. And she described a, a scene of just great tensity. That, that everyone just kind of stood still. You didn't know where to look, whether the ground or the judge or the defendant. Like the air rushed out of the room, like time itself slowed. And I, I thought that was an amazing description in light of the fact that, it, that Dawn wasn't on trial. And yet she felt this tension. That, that she felt this, even though the, the defendant stood before not a perfect God, but an imperfect man. That she felt this, even though this man faced the sentence of, I think, at the max, four years. Not four trillion years and more. That she felt this tension, even though this man's alleged crimes were against the state and not against a holy God. And yet that tension was there. What will it be like to stand before God himself and to await this verdict? What will it be like to hear him say to you, no condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation. I can't imagine the glory of those words on that day. In fact, in the Greek, the, this word no is fronted in the sentence to emphasize the point. It wants to really draw out the fact that there is no condemnation for us. One paraphrase puts it this way. No, not even one little bit of condemnation to them in Christ Jesus. It is completely out of the question. Now to be clear, that's, Paul's not saying that there is no grounds for condemnation. He is not saying that there is no grounds for accusation. He is not saying that you and I have not done anything that deserves condemnation. Our, our innocence will be, be proclaimed that day, but that is not the same as saying that you and I are innocent. In fact, we are far from it. And that's why I believe these words will be so glorious when we hear no condemnation, because we actually deserve the opposite of that. Guilty was our status. We owed him our lives for the rebellion in our hearts. If you're here today and you're not a Christian... Please know that we Christians do not think we are better than you. 
Perhaps you've gotten that impression from us, from some of our brothers and sisters. If you have, will you please accept my apology? That's not what we believe. Though I'm sure in our sinfulness, it is what we sometimes communicate. We Christians believe the exact opposite, actually. I believe we're probably more aware than most of our own wickedness and pride and hypocrisy. I think we know more than most that we react in haste and speak with cruelty and judge with arrogance and think with hatred and feel with envy. We don't feel we're better than you. We feel like we are sinners, which is why this word is so glorious for us. That's why this truth is so powerful for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because we were as good as condemned. The case was open and shut. The law judging us was impeccable. The charges against us substantial. The evidence convicting us insurmountable. The witnesses opposing us reliable. The accuser denouncing us indisputable. The arguments damning us irrefutable. The defense supporting us, disgraceful. The judge assessing us, irreproachable. The sentence before us, eternal. The prison to house us, unbearable. The guilty verdict, undeniable. Yet, friends, I tell you, based upon the authority of God's word this morning, the charges have been dropped. The evidence has been tossed aside. The witnesses have been silenced. The accuser has been muzzled. The arguments have stopped. The defense has rested its case. And the verdict is in. No condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation. Forever and ever and ever and ever. No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's be clear that Paul's not a universalist. He believes there are some in Christ Jesus and some outside Christ Jesus. Some who will receive the verdict of no condemnation. Others will be condemned. Does not matter what acts of penance you do. It does not matter how good a life you live. All that matters is that you are in Christ Jesus, that you are united with him through faith. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, whoever believes him who sent me will not be condemned. You believe in him, in that faithful, repentant trust, you will not be condemned. In fact, he would go on in the book of Mark and say in chapter 16, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Friend, where are you? Are you in Christ Jesus? There is room in Christ. There is always more room in Jesus. Where are you? I appreciate what the Baptist Charles Spurgeon once said. I can understand a man doubting whether he is truly converted or not, but I cannot countenance his apathy in resting quiet till he has solved the riddle. How can you give sleep to your eyelids till you know it? Not know, not know whether you are in Christ or not, perhaps unreconciled, perhaps condemned already, perhaps on the brink of hell, perhaps with nothing more to keep you out than the breath that is in your nostrils or the circulating drop of blood which any one of 10,000 haps or mishaps may stop. And the career is closed. 
Your life story ended. I entreat thee, he said. I beseech thee, shake off this sluggishness. Ask the Lord to say unto thy soul, I am thy salvation. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I believe by faith that God is calling you to him even now. Come to me, he says. Trust me. And I will give you this verdict. I will be your pardon. For those of us who are in Christ this morning, perhaps there are some here who say, well, pastor, who cares about no condemnation? Because today I got like 500 problems. And you're telling me about something that I'm going to have to deal with 20, 50, 60 years from now. What about today? Do you have any help for me today? And, and, and let's just say I don't. Let's say I have nothing to give you today. I, I will tell you this, that even if this were no help, what Christ gives you in this verdict of innocence, in this pr- pronouncement of no condemnation, is infinitely better than any help he can give you today. Because this life is short and eternity is long. And if you tell me I have to endure 85 years of utter misery so I can have 85 trillion years and more of complete satisfaction in my maker, I will take that deal every time. And so even if there is no help, this to me is the greatest news that I can give you. But there is help. I think there is great help today in these truths. I think the help lies in the fact that we now know that God's actions towards you are not condemning actions. In other words, all that God will give you if you are in Christ Jesus is not condemnation, but grace. There will be good days, undoubtedly, and there will be bad days, I understand. But do know this, that none of those days will bring God's condemnation. God will never, 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 never punish you. Your punishment has been paid by Jesus Christ. You may be disciplined in order to correct your behavior, but he will never punish you. All of his condemning wrath has been spent, and now it has been replaced by his omnipotent grace. So if tomorrow you end up lying in the hospital, and the prognosis is not good, and the accuser whispers in your ear that God has turned on you, he is your enemy, you are being punished, you may have these words for your defense, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or perhaps you are wrecked with a guilt of sin that you may have even committed this morning, and you hear in your heart the words, will God judge me? Has God had enough of me? Am I just simply too bad? Friends, I tell you by God's word, there there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, you notice this little word here in verse 1. There is therefore, get the next word, now no condemnation. Okay, there will be no condemnation. We, in fact, if you look in Romans chapter 8 and verse 33, we read, Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised. And so one day there will be no condemnation. There'll be no prosecuting attorney in heaven or hell. No judge in the hereafter to bring charges against you. But Romans 8.1 says there is therefore now, now, no condemnation. The verdict's been rendered. 2,000 years ago. And today, you do not have God's condemnation and you shall never more. So I tell you, shake off your despair. There's no condemnation. Come in off the ledge. There is no condemnation. 
Raise your head in confidence. There is no condemnation. Lie your head down in in anxiety-free worry. There is no condemnation. Drink deeply from the cup of God's favor for you, for there is no condemnation. I believe you ought to learn this verse, Christian. I believe you ought to believe it. I believe you ought to cherish it. I believe you ought to store it in your heart and use it to fight your fight for faith and joy. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's not all he gives us, as if that were not enough. Not only do we receive this proclamation of our innocence, we also see, secondly, we have a transformation. My second point this morning that I believe we find hope in, according to verse 2, is that our freedom is secured. Know what the scripture says. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see, there was a time in which we were in bondage to what Paul calls the law of sin and death. And what I believe he means by law is not so much a the Mosaic Code or some set of commandments. I believe what Paul is referring to with that word law is a principle or an authority or a power in us. The reason I believe this is if you look a little bit um, um, up in your Bible or back in your Bible in chapter 7 and verse 23, just a couple of verses earlier, Paul writes, But I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the, no, note this phrase, the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so I believe what Paul refers to here in Romans 7.23 is I have this impulse, this tendency towards sin, towards rebellion. I think that's the same idea he has here in verse 2 in Romans chapter 8. There's something in me that pulls me, that draws me into sin. You've experienced this, I trust some, some, some inclination or power that almost uh, holds out sin as a great delight for me. Sometimes it's called indwelling sin or our sinful nature. Other times simply called the flesh. He says there's this law of sin and he adds, and death. Because I believe the, the law of sin that pulls us into rebellion will eventually lead us to death. Either in this life or the life to come. He says, this is what you were once in bondage to. But notice verse 2 tells us that we have been set free from that. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so some other law has come into our life now. He calls it the law of the spirit of life. And he's freed us from this law of bondage to sin, this impulse to sin, this power to sin has been superseded by a new power. The Spirit of God who resides within you even this very moment. And I trust you, you've experienced this as well. The more you grow in your faith, the, the more sin loses its appeal to you. The more righteousness grows in its delight. This law has come to, to defeat the old law in our life. Let, let me give you an analogy of what I think verse 2 is teaching. If, if you all right now are, are under the effects of the law of gravity... Right? None of you are strapped down in your pews for fear of floating to the sky. Right? We're all just sitting there. Law of gravity is working on you. In fact, if I were to take my Bible and I were to let go, watch what happens. You see that? You want to see it again? Look at that. Isn't that cool? Did you know that? Watch it. All right? So what happens is a law pulls upon my Bible and brings it down. And if I were to do this a million times this morning, we wouldn't think that on the millionth and once it would just float there, would we? Well, it would float to this. I mean, we could see it. So, I mean, it's still falling. 
What happens if I introduce a, a new principle? What happens if I interrupt this pull? What happens if something comes to intercede? What happens if something hand reaches out and takes hold of you? And now there's a new principle that's interceding, that's keeping my Bible from hitting the pulpit. It's my hand. There's a new law, a new principle. And I understand the analogy is not perfect. Don't press it too far. But I, but I believe that we have this pull upon us into sin. But what God has done by giving us his spirit is he's coming and is defeating that law, that pull upon us by introducing this ability to actually overcome the sin in our life. The spirit does this by sanctifying us, by renewing our minds, by giving us new hopes and aspirations and dreams, by convicting us of sin, by filling us with distaste and disgust for the things that once used to fill us with great pleasure and longing and desire. The Spirit has come to set you free from this. And I know we're not perfectly set free. Don't mistake in me, right? We still sin. Sin still pulls us into it. We still believe the lie that sin holds greater delight for us than righteousness and following after the Lord. But I hope that pull is growing weaker as the Spirit grows stronger in your life. One pastor said, the triumphant blow has been struck. The dominion of sin has been broken. And its final defeat is for sure. Friends, know that when you fight against sin, when you try to have victory over that temptation, you do not do it in your own strength, but you do it according to the spirit of life who resides within you. This is, this is what you've been given if you are in Christ Jesus. See that there in verse 2? That the, for the law, the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We're not only free from the penalty of the law, no condemnation, but we are being set free from the power of the law. I hope you've experienced this, Christian. I hope you experience the growing freedom that God has for you through his spirit. In fact, what is the last sin you've experienced great victory over? Can you testify? Can you put your finger on the work of the spirit and say, yeah, I've been struggling with this, but I'm, I'm getting beyond it. The spirit's giving me strength. He's helping me to overcome. I hope you can. He's in you. He's working towards this end. I, I hope that you can, you, you understand where the Spirit is giving you aid. I wonder when's the last time you shared that with your sister. So I just want to encourage you what the Spirit's doing in my life. You know, I, I was struggling here and the and Spirit's just, I feel like He's giving me new desires, new longings, overcoming this temptation, and I just want to give Him glory. I wonder when's the last time you've encouraged your brother and said, listen, I was once really um, in, stuck in this sin, but I feel like God is liberating me. I feel like the Spirit of God is giving me new strength. I think you ought to encourage one another what the Spirit's doing. In fact, I think we ought to praise Him for what He's doing. I thought we ought to give Him joy. You do understand that, that this meeting, I mean, you look around, this is a meeting of former slaves. Do we not all have that in common? We were once in bondage to the law of sin and death. We know where we're headed. And yet we've been set free now. This ought to unite us together. Not that we could look down each other and think of our relative righteousness over one another. No, friends, we were all once in bondage. And now we are set free, not because you're good or I'm good, but because he's good and he has put his spirit in my life. And now my freedom is secured. That ought to bring us great unity and joy, I believe, in this body of Christ. But that's not all he's done. 
He's not only proclaimed your innocence, he's not only secured your freedom, but thirdly, we see according to verse 3 that he has condemned our sin. Our sin is condemned. Note what the apostle says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Paul says there's something here that the law can't do. What is it that the law can't do? It can't save you. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 that no one will be justified by the works of the law. The law is unable to save you. You think, well, is the law bad then? Is there something wrong with the law? No, friends, the law is perfect. The law is glorious. In fact, we shall have the law, I believe, God's moral code with us for all eternity. The apostle writes in Romans 7 and verse 12, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's something wrong with you and me. Yeah, that's what he says. He says, for God has done what the law, here it is, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law wasn't bad, we are. There's that flesh again, that law of sin, our own sinful nature, our inclination into sin. And what the law can only do for us in our flesh is point out right and wrong for us. It only can show us our sin. In fact, in in Romans 3.20, Paul continues by saying, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. The law can't remove your condemnation. It only only identifies your sin. It only points to it. It only shows you your sin. Sometimes it stirs it up in us. It actually conjures the rebellion in our heart. If you're on death row, the the way to get off death row is not by obeying the law. You, You don't need new commandments if you are sentenced. You need a pardon. You need to be forgiven. The law doesn't do that. The law doesn't pardon. The law only does one thing. It condemns. It is weakened by the flesh. But here's the good news. That God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Well, what has he done? Well, if we read on in verse 3, we see he's done three things for us. First of all, he says, by sending his own son. He sent Jesus. We could understand that as the incarnation. Secondly, We read that by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. I think this is a reference to Jesus' perfection. You see that I think the apostle is being very precise here. That he is in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, he's not in sinful flesh. Jesus never sinned. He didn't come in sinful flesh. He is perfect and he must be perfect in order that he can bear our sins, not his own. And the apostle also does not say he came in the likeness of flesh, as if he were not fully human. We believe that he is really human. We believe that Jesus grew thirsty and hungry, that he slept, that he wept, that he grew tired. We believe he's really human so he could actually be our substitute, that he could die for us. So the the apostle says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was a human, but he never sinned. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 that he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He shared our nature, not our sin, so that he could die for us. You do know, by the way, that that sin is not an essential part to human nature. You've heard the saying, to err is human. That's nonsense. To err is sin, is what it should say. But the heir is not human. Adam and Eve, and for at least for a time, lived without sin. And by the way, not only do they live without sin, you do know, uh, brother and sister in Christ, one day you shall live without sin too. You will outlive sin. 
Sin will die and you will not. You will continue on forever. What a glorious, incredible thought that one day you will be perfectly freed from the corruption that lies within you, that you may perfectly glorify the one whom you are created in his image. And so he sent his own son, the incarnation and the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, his perfection. And lastly, we see that he condemned sin in the flesh, the crucifixion. So this is how God deals with our sin. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it. He doesn't say it's not a big deal. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He condemns it in Christ through the cross. In fact, you do note verse 3, this, the condemning, he condemned, that's past tense, finished action. It's already done. All those years leading up to Christ, the law just said, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And if God was going to save some, some of us, he had to do something other than give us more commandments. He couldn't just keep giving us more laws and more rules and more commandments if we are to be saved. He needed to send a Savior. And he did so in his son, Jesus Christ, whom he crucified for us. He condemned sin in him. And I want to be very clear what Paul means when he says here in verse 3, he condemns sin in the flesh. Because sometimes we use the word condemn as a synonym for criticizing. Like um, a, a school official will condemn school shootings. Or a mayor will condemn gang violence. They're, they're criticizing it. But that's not what God's doing here. Because that's what the law does. The law is very good at criticizing sin. Right? You shall not sin. And when we do it, it's saying you have violated God's law. It's criticizing us. It's condemning us in that way. But God has done something the law could not do. And so when it says that he condemned sin in the flesh, what it means is in Jesus' death, in his suffering and dying on the cross, God actually punished sin. God found sin guilty and pun- to be punished and carried that out in the brutal, torturous death of his son. And for, just for clarity, I know we've already established this. I just want to drive this home, if you will. Whose sin was condemned? It was yours and mine. It wasn't Jesus. He had no sin. He's innocent. Jesus is the one man who could stand before a holy God and hear no condemnation based upon his own work. And he's the one that heard you're condemned. So that you and I wouldn't be. It was our sin. The Bible says in Romans 4 and verse 25, he was delivered because of our transgressions. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, Christ died for our sin. Galatians 1 4, he gave himself up for our sin. 1 Peter 2 24, he bore our sin in his body. Isaiah 53 verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was our sin that was condemned in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Not his, for he had no sin. And so verse 3, when it says he condemns sin, that's yours, in the flesh, that's Jesus, his flesh. And because of this, the promises of God are complete, as he has told us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he has cast your sin behind his back. He has cast your sin into the depth of the sea. 
He has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. He has covenanted to take away your sin. He has promised to remember your sin no more. He has stomped on your sin under his foot. He took the record of your sin, put it in the palm of Jesus, and nailed a spike through it into a cross. And you who are scarlet because you are sinful are now made white as snow. You have been covered with the blood of Christ. You have been dressed in garments of pure white. Your sin has been condemned in Christ Jesus. I know no other salve for a guilty soul other than Christ died for my sin. I know no other fortress to save us from the righteous fury of God other than Christ died for our sin. I know no other argument to give before a holy judge other than Christ died for my sin. In fact, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. This is what God has done. Do know, I hope, that Christianity, therefore, is not your spiritual do-it-yourself kit. It is not your religious self-help. It is not some spiritual resource center. It is certainly not the way you can have your best life now. Christianity is not about law-keeping. It's not about good works. It's not ultimately about penance. It's about looking away from ourselves and clinging to Christ, his death on the cross, and his perfect obedience. So quickly, let me turn to our fourth point. The law is fulfilled. He's done more for us than to condemn sin for us. He actually has fulfilled the law for us on our behalf. Note the apostle says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so I believe what this verse is teaching us is that Christ has perfectly completed the righteous requirement of the law, and he has credited that to you and to I. Now, I do want to tell you that not everybody agrees with my interpretation of this verse. In fact, people as learned and as godly as Tom Schreiner, John Piper, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and John Stott will all disagree with what I'm about to teach you. Um, I don't stand alone. I got John Calvin. I got Douglas Moo in my corner, Um, but there is some debate, and you ought to know that. But I believe what this verse is teaching in verse 4 is that Jesus has perfectly completed the law for you. You have not. You will never. This is why it's in the passive tense, that it's not something I did, it's something he did for me, so that the righteous requirement of the law, which is done by Jesus, may be credited to me. And I think Jesus was teaching this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, how was the law accomplished? It was accomplished in Christ perfectly. He's the only person to walk on the face of the earth that actually perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Maybe you're wondering, well, why is that important? Well, it's important because Christ not only takes our sin upon us, but he actually takes the righteousness which he accrued by perfectly obeying God's law and puts that on you. That's justification. We talked about this a little bit some time ago, that justification is not simply forgiveness, but is actually giving us something, God's righteousness giving us his innocence. If you got an F, I think I use this illustration, and I toss aside your F and say, don't worry about it, I won't hold the F against you, that's forgiveness. But what if I actually credit you with an A? 
That's justification. That's crediting us his righteousness. You ever wonder why uh, God didn't let Herod kill Jesus? I mean, if Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins, and there he was, and people were out to kill him, why not just have him die there as a baby? And they're atoned for our sins, perfect sacrifice. Or why didn't he just send him fully grown, and a day later, he dies on the cross? Well, I believe it's because Jesus had to live a life of perfect, active obedience in order to accrue that righteousness, if you will, in order to give it to you and to I. He's giving you his righteousness. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our sin on us. That we might become the righteousness of God. He gave us his righteousness. That's what he's done for us. You see what he's given you? He's proclaimed your innocence. He's secured your freedom. He's condemned your sin. And he has fulfilled the law for you. What hope we have today. I wonder if there are some here uh, this morning that are thinking... Haven't we already talked about these things over the past couple of weeks? I mean, maybe, maybe you're a little bit afraid that the new preacher, all he knows to talk about is Jesus and his substitutionary death for us. Well, if that's your fear, let me tell you two things. One, I believe the Bible to be deep and rich, and I look forward in the coming years to explore its majesty. Number two, I have a very hard time growing tired of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation upon which I stand. All other truths, I believe, are built upon his death and resurrection. So friends, get comfortable with these words. Christ has died. Christ has risen for you. And because he has died, your penalty has been endured. The sentence has been served. The debt has been paid. The sin condemned. The law fulfilled. The bonds broken. Your innocence proclaimed. So let me leave you with these words this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, I'm not sure if there's any greater truth to consider this morning. The verdict is in. And despite all the evidence we bring to the court to the opposite, the declaration is we are free from condemnation. We praise you, Jesus for your great love for us and your great desire to show God to be a holy and just God and to give us his love and grace at the same time. I pray that these truths, Father, would be just a strong foundation for us, that we would be able to stand upon these truths tomorrow, that we may go into this world with this banner flying over our head. I have no condemnation. This is a tough world, dear Lord. Is hard and difficult, full of trial and trouble and distress. We know this. You promised it would be. But Lord, let us face it with joy in our hearts and victory in our soul, knowing that our condemnation has been cast aside, has been paid for by our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us therefore go into this world free from judgment in our hearts and hypocrisy and pride and arrogance. Just root that out of us by the gospel. How can we be proud, dear Lord? How can we be arrogant in light of the gospel for what Christ has done for us? Help it rather to not build us up, but help it to build you up in our eyes, in our hearts. 
Help us to know that you alone are to be treasured, that you, if you were to give us the inheritance of the worlds, it would make us none the richer, for we have Christ. Help that truth to be our great anchor, our foundation, our shelter, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.